Hosea, God uses his life as sort of this picture. Um, God tells Hosea, go marry a woman who has been a prostitute. Take yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry for the land commits harlotry. Basically, the people of Israel in their spiritual adultery and unfaithfulness to God, God wanted to give them this visible picture. Here's my prophet. He marries this woman. She keeps running off after other guys and having children by them. And that is a picture of how Israel has behaved toward her husband who is God. And God's patience and forgiveness and continuing to take Israel back over and over and over again is pictured in Hosea's actions as well. That's what we see in the early part of the book. And then in the later part of the book, uh, we see just descriptions of all the different ways that the Israelites have abandoned God and gone their own way and chased after idols. Uh, we looked at the beginning of chapter 13 several weeks ago, uh, this idea that there was trembling. Uh, it could have been fear of Ephraim. Uh, and that seems to be a decent possibility for verse 1. He exalts himself in Israel, but through Baal he did wrong and died. They send more and more, make for themselves molten images and idols, all of them the work of craftsmen. They say, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. They say, all right, what's the big deal about the calves? Well, when the um, people of Israel came up from Egypt, they had a lot of Egyptian pagan practices with them. And so when they thought Moses had gone up Mount Sinai and abandoned them, they made idols in the shape of the gods they saw in Egypt, strong bulls. This was supposed to represent God. And God said, I don't want to be represented by pagan idols. And uh, so in the same way, when they came into the land, when Jeroboam draws the ten tribes away from Solomon's son Rehoboam, he sort of reinstates this worship that they did in the wilderness worshiping the true God by means of idols that ended up being just all sorts of idolatry and not even worship God at all. And they set up an alternative priesthood and place of worship and times of sacrifice and sort of mixed it with all the pagan idolatry of the culture around them. And so God's response in verse 3 is they'll be like the morning cloud and the dew that disappears, chaff blown away and smoke from a chimney. So let's pick up now in verse 4. Someone read for us maybe verses 4 through 8. Thank you. Yes, please. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. Uh, it was who I knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought, but when they had grain, they became full. They were filled, and their hearts were lifted up. Therefore they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cup. I will tear open their breasts, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. Okay. So what's God saying in verse 4? Sandra? He's the one and only true God. Okay. And how long has God been with them? Forever. Forever, but at the very least since the land of Egypt. So they, they come from the land of Egypt, and then... Um, they have the time of the judges, and then Saul becomes the king, David becomes the king, Solomon becomes the king, all the kings since then. So, try to remember approximately the time of the Exodus. Let's say, and I don't think this is entirely accurate, but let's say 
the Exodus is around 1400 BC, and then we have all the things with the time. Uh, no, that doesn't seem quite right. Let's say it's 11, 1200 BC, and then let's say that David reigns by let's say 950, and then now there uh, these prophets are prophesying in the 700s. So even if we're talking just two or three hundred years, that's a really long time, that God has been their God, a number of generations that they've known Him, that they should have followed after Him, and all of these sorts of things. So, I've been the Lord your God, and you weren't supposed to know any God beside me, for there's no Savior besides me. Um, what's the temptation if you have known about God or Christianity for a long time? Take it for granted, be complacent, okay? And if, hmm, let's say you lost your family, somebody took you in. And let's say you'd been with them for like a If you said, I hate them, I'm running away from them, we would say that's not great, but it's maybe a little bit understandable. There's no relationship there, right? But let's say that you had been part of a family for 50 years and one day you're just like, I want nothing to do with the rest of you. That cuts more deeply. That's more of a betrayal maybe than what we see and parallels what we see here. God has been with them this whole time. God is taking care of them this whole time. And over and over and over again, they said, we're going to go our own way. We don't care. We don't love you. We don't want to follow you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the specific action that God's rebuking them for that you are supposed to be worshiping me and you keep worshiping these other things over and over. Okay? Good. Uh, how about verse 6? Why did the Israelites get in this position where God has to rebuke them for unfaithfulness to him through their idolatry? What sort of happens in verses 5 and 6? Yeah. <laughs> they were satisfied and became proud. Yeah. Kind of like America. Sorry, the water fountain always decides to run whenever we're trying to say <laughs> important. Um, all right, so when we have a lot, we're tempted, I think it's Proverbs 30, where it says, the, he, the, the king prays, help me not to be... Um, be uh, What's, rich, how does it, so rich so I forget you. Yeah. But that part here that's being emphasized, when we think we don't need anything, we easily forget God, right? Now we can forget God when we don't feel like we have anything and try to solve it our own way. But especially when we have a lot, we feel like we don't need God. So, the United States is not Israel, but do we as a nation have a lot? Yeah. Yeah. So do we as a nation tend to think we need God? No. Somebody, um, lots of people start getting sick. Somebody famous has a heart attack. All of a sudden, everybody needs God, right? But for the rest of the time, we're like, we don't need God because we're good. We're all set. Yeah, we need God like every day. We do, absolutely, right? No matter what. But they became proud because they had what they needed and they forgot God. And so what's God's response in verse 7 and 8? 
So all these images here, Hosea 13, 7. Yeah. I will them. Right. So being like a lion, uh, sometimes we think of God positively as being like a lion, right? So we see the phrase like Lion of Judah or, or that sort of thing. We think God's strong and powerful, right? But here it's like you are camping in the wilderness and you find bears coming to rip your tent open, right? This is not a positive thing. I've never had that experience, but I think it's a common thing that people who don't camp a lot have a fear of when they go to a remote place. Jonathan? It's almost more like a description of them being reckless and, and not paying attention to the dangers and taking for granted that God's protecting them and they're going along and God's saying, okay, <laughs> that's the way you feel about it and I'm going to punish you in these terrible ways. And right. And God doesn't do it directly. God uses the Assyrians and other nations to accomplish this, but it is very clearly God's hand. And you see glimpses of this in some of the Psalms where there are expressions of confession and repentance or even some of the prophets that this has happened and we acknowledge that it's happened because of our sin. So, yeah, okay, that's a good point as well. Um, so then... Anything else from verses 4 through 8? Yes, Sandra. When we sin, like, um, we should uh, God punish us. Because God says that he chastens those whom he loves. Yeah, so that's something that we need to think about because um, I think it's easy for us to have the attitude that God is waiting for us to do something bad so that he can sort of like stick it to us, right? And I don't think that we should have a vindictive picture of God. Um, but at the same time, to the point of what Sandra is saying, uh, Hebrews 12 says, if you don't experience any discipline from God, it can often be a sign that God doesn't love you. Like if you never experience, if everything always goes your way, there's, a, there's the likelihood that you're going the wrong way and God's sort of letting you do that. Yes? Was this before Yes, so this would have been about 700 years, I think. I'm trying to remember, the Assyrian conquest was 586. I want to say he's writing this in the six, between 6 and 700 B.C., yeah. 755 to 715. Okay. I was thinking about like God, God will punish us. Mm-hmm. And I was reminded like he sent Jesus to save us. So, I was, so that made me wonder like did this all this happen before Jesus died? Right. And at the same time, um, <laughs> all right, really quick aside because this might be helpful. Um, so you have in the Old Testament, you have God and you have Israel. And then in the New Testament, you have Jesus, and you have the church. And we have both of these. There's this picture of marriage, right? Um, And obviously, God and Jesus, God the Father, God the Son, are both God. And Israel, the church, are not the same thing, but the parallel is that they're both God's people, right? And so... um, the parallel, I think, which we're going to talk on, touch on when we get to First Peter in the morning service, 
the, the parallel that's interesting is this question of faithfulness. So, is there going to be faithfulness from Israel to God? Is there going to be faithfulness from the church to Jesus? The basis of the relationship is the promise and the things that God has done to establish it. And so, that when, and that's where maybe a word like discipline is more helpful than a word like punish or a word like rebuke instead of a word like destroy. Uh, it's di it's the, part of the challenge is when you think of Israel, you have Israel, right? And then you have the people who really like have a relationship with God, right? And so this is all of Israel, right? I can't spell this morning. Okay. Um, so there are people who are going to experience the judgment when God sends it with the Assyrians and they're going to be destroyed because they don't actually have a relationship with God. And then there's a handful of people, and the Old Testament talks over and over again about the idea of a remnant, and those people are people who genuinely have a relationship with God, uh, but um, a lot of the people around them don't. So you have, for example, uh, Elijah thinks he's the only one. God says there's 7,000 other people who haven't bowed the knee to Baal out of a nation of, I don't know, 50 or 100,000, however many people it is. Like, let's say 5 to 10% is the remnant, okay? Uh, in the day that Hosea is writing, there's a handful of people that are following after God, but most of them are going their own way. So the majority of the people in the land of Israel, if they get killed in battle, they're going to be separated from God. But there's a handful that are not, even if they die in all the battles and destruction that comes. And God is going to preserve some of their descendants to return to the land eventually. And so, um, the net result is that the nation as a whole is purified and restored, even though specific individuals may die in battle or be killed by disease or starve in famine or all those sorts of things. So... I do think, though, that we should, because God chose Israel as a nation, and because God established this special relationship with them, um, it's not... It's, uh, remember that scene where God talks with Moses, and he says, Moses, the people are being stubborn and rebellious. I can just wipe them out and start over. Give you some kids. We'll start a new nation. And Moses says, God, but... You've made all these promises to them, and all the nations around have seen it, and you can't do that because of who you are and the promises you've made. God wasn't uh, forgetting all those things. He was testing Moses and setting up Moses as a forerunner of Christ, interceding for the people who were sinful. And so, um, I think what's going on in this book here is, yes, any of them that were preserved through God's judgment, it would have been on the basis of their relationship with God, anticipating the coming of Jesus. And the entire nation is being punished to get the entire nation to return to God. I don't know if that's... That, there's a lot of like really big Old Testament, New Testament themes in all this. Yeah? I think it's helpful to, along with everything you just said, to remember, too, that God is both judge and father. Yeah. So, from the judge perspective, he's looking at, is there faith or not? But from the parental perspective, once there is faith, just like a parent would, there's discipline, there's chastening, there's 
uh, correction, and we need that. So just like you're saying, we, we, have, we have to understand that it's not one or the other. If, you're, if there's faith, there's, there's both that, <coughs> that relates to us. Well, and let me, let me kind of like bring those two things together. Um, Braden and I were talking about one of his school assignments on, I don't know, Friday. Brayden, I'm trying to remember what it was that you said. About the school assignment thing. I asked you a question. I think you said something like, you can look at the fridge, right? Something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. So in that moment, I don't love him any less, but I said, we're not going to talk that way to an authority figure, right? Uh, that's the same kind of thing with God, the thing that you're talking about there. God is simultaneously our Father and the one who calls us into discipline when we are not doing what is pleasing to him. And at the end of the day, I'm a sinner, and I don't expect that my children should respect me because of me, but simply because of more like understanding the, the structures that God has established and respecting those. But um, God never sins, never does anything wrong, and so to the extent that we are rebellious or blasphemous or proud or all those sorts of things. God does have the right to say, hey, don't be this way. But he does it lovingly as our Father, but he still does it because he wants to get us to this point. And that's the point of all this that God puts them through. We're going to come to some really terrible verses here at the end of chapter 13. We say, why in the world would God go to such extreme measures and or permit pagan nations to do such terrible things to his own people? We look at it from the perspective of like dying in battle or starving to death is the worst possible thing that could happen. And from God's perspective, people who ought to have a relationship with Him and have said that they do, loving sin and wandering away from Him is far worse than if we were to face suffering and death and all those things if it brought us back to Him. So let's, uh, let's go on to verses 9, 9 through 11. Someone read those for us, 9 through 11. Bob? It is your destruction, O Israel, that you are against me, against your help. Where now is your king, that he may save you in all your cities, and your judges, of whom you requested, give me a king and princes. I, have, I gave you a king in my anger, and took him away in my wrath. Alright, what about from these verses, what do we notice here? God is mad at them. Okay. Okay. Now, these things about the king, why does he bring up this issue of the king? Jonathan, Sandra, one of you. Good. Good. Yeah. Originally, God was um, to be their king okay. and their leader and whom they were to follow. And um, they asked for a king because they wanted to be like the nations around them. Yeah. And he finally reluctantly said, okay, we'll, we'll put you through this lesson. And we gave them a king. Right. Okay. Sandra? Um, same, same thing. God sent him amongst the nations and they refused to cut his head through. Yeah. Like in um, human king. Yeah. And then they didn't like that because so they kept wanting another. Yeah. So I think this was a reminder to them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I give you what you want to get in your sin. And now you have to deal with me. 
Yeah, so there's this idea of, of um, there's a verse, I think it's in one of the Psalms that we looked at, or else it's early in Hosea, one of the two. But it's sort of this picture of God extends his hand and the breath of life goes in them, and God withdraws his hand and the breath of life is taken back. And that kind of imagery is what I think we see here. I gave you the king, and as a nation you rebelled, I took away your king, and now you have no king, you're, you're plundered by the nations, that kind of idea. Uh, I would point out, and this is an important thing to remember, God's plan was always for them to have a king. So the issue when it came to Saul was not the request for a king, it was the when and the way that they were asking. So they wanted Saul because he's tall and impressive and they just want someone like a figurehead to be like the nations, impress the nations. So that was a wrong motive, wrong king, wrong time. But if you go all the way back to Genesis 49, I think, God prophesied through Jacob that particularly through Judah, descendants would, kings would continue from his line until the Messiah comes, right? Norma. Did the kings mocking God and dishonor him, in that case that gives him a consequence? Right. That we need compassion, repentance, and obedience. Yeah. So it's God who trusts that we have faith in God and we trust in the Lord. Yeah. And, and uh, along those lines, what was part of the king's job was to teach the people to follow God. Like, we think of kings like they're just in charge of the country, but kings in Israel were supposed to have their own handwritten copy of the law that they had copied themselves. They were supposed to make sure that people were learning and hearing about God. And as far as they abandoned those responsibilities and essentially gave themselves over to drunkenness and all sorts of other things, then they weren't leading the people well, and so God took away their authority from them. Uh, anything else from these verses? All right, uh, someone read 12 through 14 for us, please. 12 to 14. Thank you. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is stored up. The pains of childbirth come upon him. He is not a wise son. For it is not the time that he should delay at the opening of the womb. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your thorns? O shield, where is your sting? Compassion will be hidden from my sight. All right, so let's take 12 and 13 together. What, what sort of thing is going on in these verses? Sandra? Yes, and then verse 13, what's this image of childbirth have to do with? It may help if you think about James and when it says sin is conceived. What does it say there? Anybody remember? Okay, yeah, so sin it sort of grows and grows and grows, and then it is birthed, and the end result is death, right? Which is kind of a strange picture, but I think it's the same kind of one that we're seeing here. Ephraim sins and sins and sins. The pains of childbirth, of delivering the consequences of his actions have come upon him. 
he's not a wise son, for it's not the time he should delay at the opening of the womb. He, uh, it's sort of this picture that people think that like you come to the point of the, the birth, the fruit, the result of what you've done. You can be like, wait! How does that work? If it's time for the baby to come, does the baby like, no, I'm going to wait another six weeks? No. It's, it happens in that moment. And so that is a really important thing because we think that we can sin and sin and sin and then when the consequences come, we can delay them or avoid them. And I think God's saying to Ephraim, you're foolish to think that. There's possibly a few other things going on here, but I think that's the main idea. How about verse 14? This verse is probably sound familiar for another reason, but in their immediate context here first, why is God asking this question? He's, he's basically saying, you're asking for my mercy and for me to take away the punishment of your sin, but I'm telling you that I'm not going to. Okay. What's different about this and the way Paul uses it in Romans 15, or 1 Corinthians 15? This is a rebuke. Yeah. And the way Paul uses it, it's his salvation. Right. Where does God deal with Israel's sin, or in whom? In Christ. In Christ. And so... When God deals with sin through Christ, there was not compassion. Remember the beginning of the book? He says, Lo Ruhama, no mercy, right? First Peter two eight, mercy people. How? Through Jesus. Okay? So first Peter two is tied in with the first part of Hosea. This is tied in with first Corinthians fifteen. But the way the New Testament authors are using these ideas from Hosea is here is a sinful people that God's rebuking who seem to have no hope. You come to the New Testament, through Jesus there is hope. Sin's been dealt with. We have forgiveness. We can be God's people and find His mercy. And, uh, but at the moment, this is very sternly a rebuke. Should I take away the sting of death and sin and consequences and punishment? No, there will be no compassion in this moment. Uh, how about verses 15 and 16? These are the ones I mentioned that were very hard. Evan, go ahead and read those, please. Thanks. So he flourishes among the reeds. An east wind will come, the wind of the Lord coming up from the wilderness. And his fountain will become dry, and his spring will be dried up. It will plunder his treasury of every precious article. Samaria will be held guilty, for she has rebelled against her God. They will fall by the sword. Their little ones will be dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women will be ripped open. What do we see from these verses here? I see God's wrath okay. for, their, for Israelites' rebellion against Him. What happens to Assyria later for their excesses of cruelty? They're destroyed in turn, right? God basically says, you went too far. So it's, it's this fascinating and even disturbing uh, development here of a cruel nation will come in and destroy you and have no mercy even on those that should be shown mercy in times of war. And then later on, we're going to see that God's going to rebuke Assyria and punish them as well for their excesses. So God uses them as a tool to the extent that they go beyond 
what he's appointed for them to do in their pride, God punishes them. And so um, I think it would be easy for us to look at a verse like this and say how terrible that God would bring this on his people. And I think what, I, what Hosea is calling us to do is to say how terrible that God's people would bring this on themselves. Now, are there issues of God's holiness and wrath and justice? And there's this funny theological word called theodicy, which is basically like God seems to have done something wrong. How are we going to explain it? C.S. Lewis wrote a series of essays called God in the Dock, like God's on the witness stand being asked questions, how can you do this? And that's not really the right attitude for us to have toward God, but that's sort of the attitude that we have when we come to a verse like this. But when we see it in the context, God is not unjust to punish his people, to rebuke his people, to discipline his people, to bring destruction on them when they have betrayed and abandoned and disobeyed and rejected and committed idolatry and committed immorality and lived in injustice and oppressed the poor and, and all of these things that they've done over and over and over again after God has given them many, many, many opportunities. So when we look at the span of God's relationship with his people and we think about the mercy that God showed even to the people of Canaan, there was four generations, it says, between when um, Abraham's descendants go down with Jacob in Egypt and when they come back up to the land of Canaan before many of the Canaanites are killed when the Israelites return. God gives them that space of mercy for generations to live and die in the land of Canaan. With the people of Israel, it's more than just four generations that God gives them opportunity over and over and over again to repent, and they continue not to. Anything else uh, from verses 15 and 16? All right, let's read uh, 4, 1 through 3. Who can read 4, 1 through 3? Oh, I'm sorry, chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Okay, when we see this word return, what, what New Testament word should we think of? Yeah, repent, right? Um, sometimes this creates difficulty for us in thinking about what we see in the Old Testament because some translations it says, like, God repented of the evil that he was going to bring on people. We think, well, how could God repent? That's a whole other topic. The answer to that would be God basically had this implied if. If you don't repent, here's what's going to happen. But here the idea of turning or return is Israel coming back to God. And they first of all have to recognize why it is that they're in their place of difficulty. So verse 1 says, why have you stumbled? What did they do? Because of their sin, okay? Verse 2 is a fascinating image, right? Take words with you and return to the Lord. Is it sort of, uh, I feel sorry that I'm in a difficult spot and I just come back to God and I'm like, here I am, God. 
What has to happen? You have to change. You have to repent for your sins. Okay, and part of repentance is what, Sandra? Okay, and and probably the first step of that is, okay, conviction, which then leads to confession, confession, right? So take words with you. So I recognize that I've sinned. I turn back to God and I say, God, will you forgive me of my sin? And then there are actions and all these things that follow after that that show that I meant those words that I said. But sometimes I think we want to jump from I feel like I have done wrong to God, you have received me without recognizing there has to be an acknowledgement that I have actually sinned, right? Because, and why don't we want to admit that we've sinned? Let's take it from the perspective of people around us. Why is it really hard for us to say, I didn't do this the right way? Yeah? We often worry about what people will think of us. Okay. Which points to a problem with pride. Pride. How could I possibly have done anything wrong? That's pride, right? We should be in a default of assuming that we are quite capable of doing wrong. And when we do that wrong, to acknowledge it to the people around us. But here, it's not just to people around us or even at all or primarily, but it's to God. And so we say to God, what? At the end of verse 2, or what were they supposed to say to God? Take away all iniquity. Now, this is another issue when it comes to the thing of repentance, right? Often what happens is we recognize that we did something bad and there's consequences of it and we say, God, I am sorry that life is hard for me. Will you take me back? How many of you have ever sinned but you didn't really want to stop doing the sin, you just didn't want to have to deal with the consequences of it? Right? Because... To give up that sin is to give up this thing that we love, and we shouldn't love it, right? Maybe you've ever seen one of those like most hideous dog contests, right? And the dog's there, and it's got, like, got the snaggle tooth, and like, its mouth won't shut right, and all that sort of thing. You're like, and, 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 and whoever has that dog loves that dog, and they're like, this is the best dog in the world. And other people look at it like, why do you love this thing? And in a far worse way, our sin is basically like um, way worse than what's going on with with someone loving a, a dog that's kind of a mutt, right? Our sin is this awful, evil, wicked thing, but we're just like, we're, we're cozying up to it and we're loving it and we're giving it to a hug and we're feeding it and we're, we're pouring our affection into it. And, and God says, I don't... You can't just say, well, this rabid thing bit me, give me a rabies shot, and then it'll be okay, but I'm going to have it keep living in my living room, right? God wants you to put it down, right? And take what he has for you instead, which is a relationship with him. And that's really hard for us because we love our sin, even though it keeps biting us, even though it keeps destroying us, even though it keeps hurting us, even though it eats up everything that we have, we keep loving our sin. And so he says we need to, they need to come, take away all iniquity, receive us graciously. Take it away, 
receive us with forgiveness. And then there's this acknowledgement in verse 3, what? Assyria will not save us. What did they keep doing over and over again? They would worship idols, they would get into trouble, then what would they do? Go to a neighboring country and say, help us get out of trouble. And then the neighboring country would be like, hey, you're in trouble, let's kick you while we're down. And then they would say, well, we're going to keep doing this, and God would say, just turn back to me. I would deliver you, I would save you, I would help you. So they need to say, we're not going to turn to pagan countries. Okay, what else? We're not right on horses. What is that about? What is riding on horses for them? Like, what would be the equivalent for us today? What's that? Okay, battle, but like, it'd be kind of like we say, we've got this. Braden? Okay. Yeah, so having a, a, a fancy car or perhaps in the context of, of battle, you know, we've got tanks and we've got planes and we've got battleships and we've got aircraft carriers and we've got infantry and we've got all this. We can trust in those things, right? They said we're going to stop trusting in the nations around us. We're going to stop trusting in ourselves. We'll not say our God again to the work of our hands. Why? So we're going to stop trusting in the idols that we've made. So part of this whole... Uh, rejecting our sin, turning back to God, is acknowledging all the different things that we've been trusting in instead of God. Okay? And look at verse 3, the end of it. In you the orphan finds mercy. Um, the one that wouldn't, nobody else cares about, God cares for. Potentially, and this might be pushing it too far, the ones who have lost their parents in God's judgment in verse 16 will find mercy in God when they turn back to Him someday. That might be pushing it too far. It might not be, though. How about verses 4 through 7? What's God's response? Someone read that for us, please. 4 through 7. Okay, thanks, sir. Okay, what's God's response if they come to Him humbly seeking repentance? He will love them and restore them. Love and restore them, right? So there's all these imager, ima, images of uh, things that they would have found stately and majestic and pleasant and beautiful and all those sorts of things, right? The dew. Why was the dew important in Israel? Yeah, I mean, there's not a ton of rain, so dew would have been important for there to be moisture for the plants, right? There's blossoming like the lily. There's taking root like Lebanon cedars, uh, olive trees. And then there's this idea there's shade, there's rest from the sun, there is um, fruitfulness again that is uh, sort of mm, told to the nations around them his renown like the wine of Lebanon. How about verses 8 and 9? Who can read 8 and 9 for us? Yeah. 
Yes, thanks. Go ahead, Trent. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. The leaf comes with me. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Okay, what's going on in verse 8? So we wrap up here. Okay. Yeah. And all the things he's doing for them. Okay. Okay. Good. Anything, the, the last part of verse 8 reminds you of anything in the New Testament? I'm like a luxuriant cypress, from me comes your fruit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So if Jesus is the vine, there's the fruit of the Holy Spirit, things like love and patience and all of that. But that doesn't come apart from a relationship with God, a rejection of idols, a turning to God as the true God. And then verse 9 is sort of a summary. Um, this reminds me, I think, in the Gospels, there's, uh, there's these statements by Jesus, let the one who has ears let him hear. Right? If you're wise, understand these things. Um, think about 1 Corinthians 1. What seems wise to us is often not wise at all. What seems wise to us is figure it out yourself. You don't need God. Life will be great. And what is actually wise is humble yourself, acknowledge you are nothing apart from God, and turn to Him and He will restore and bless you. And so, the, although there's a lot of terrible, sobering, difficult things in this book, it closes with the message of hope in God and what he can do for his people. So, let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths. Help us to ponder them and not quickly forget them. And we pray for the morning service as well here in just a few minutes. Amen.